welcome and good morning. This is the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome all persons of all religions, all ethnic and racial origins, all sexual orientations and gender identifications. We recognize and affirm all abilities and other circumstances. And we extend a special welcome to all of our visitors this morning. We're glad that you're here. Now, we have many things to cover today, but the first thing I'd like is to start practicing finding the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left, saying good morning and welcoming. Let us start this time together by lighting our chalice and reading the words in unison that are in our order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. The opening words are by William Schultz. Come into this place of peace and let its silence heal your spirit. Come into this place of memory and let its history warm your soul. Come into this place of prophecy and power and let its vision change your heart. This is a remarkable community. What makes this community so remarkable is all of the individuals within it. And because we are Unitarian Universalists, we all have different theologies. For each one of us, there will probably be two or three theologies. And that's okay. Comes in handy. But how do we figure out how to be together? Well, it's because we are a community with a mission. It was a mission that was so astonishing. We worked together to build this mission, to identify this mission. And when we saw it, it was astonishing. It was so beautiful because it was us. It was so beautiful that we put it on our wall. It was so beautiful that we say it together each Sunday. Please join with me in reading the mission of this church. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now we head down just a little deeper into a time of centering and prayer. It is the custom of this church during this time, if you are so moved, to go and light a candle of memory or hope, or simply to add a little light to this world. And in this time of silence, we will also acknowledge that silence includes the sounds of people, young people, breathing people, being people. Please join with me in this time, beginning with a breath. In and out. Spirit of love and life, be with us as we breathe and rest gently among us as a congregation of bodies. Be with us as we sift through all of the challenges of this past week. Be with us 
as we examine the challenges of this moment. Be with us as we trip and fail and break things. Be with us as we do the hard work of forgiveness and starting over. The simple work of wiping away crumbs and tears. Spirit, be with us as we fret that nothing stays the same. Be with us even as we constantly change. Because, dear Spirit, we are forever learning new ways of doing the old work. And may this give us courage with each breath in and out. A long time ago, I sat in church and I listened to the minister tell a story, and it changed me. Stories can do that. Sometimes ministers can do that. Here's the story. A woman was injured in an accident, and as her body hovered between life and death, she found herself in the presence of presence. And it asked her, who are you? She answered with her name, I am Jane Smith. The presence wasn't satisfied. No, who are you? She tried again. Um, I'm the wife of John and I'm the mother of Susan and Thomas. No, I asked, who are you? She was confused. She began giving other answers. I'm the daughter of Gerald and Rachel. Uh, No. She gave the names of her grandparents, her neighbors, her teachers, her students. No. Who are you? Eventually, the woman was just baffled. I guess I don't know. And at that moment, she awoke in her body and began the difficult work of answering that question. Now, when I first heard that story, it electrified me. It it did what a really good story did. It I like the fact that the minister had made the protagonist a woman, was a woman, because not enough stories had women protagonists. And, and, and I loved that the presence asked her to scrape away all of the layers and find out what's deepest inside her. Yeah, I have too many layers. I need to scrape. Yeah, because the story did what was good. It, it, it both comforted me and challenged me at the same time. And after it, I went out again into the world to find out who I am. And the journey took me through some dark valleys, and there were some cliffs, 
Luckily, the fall didn't kill me, and I was able to swim. Here's what happened. I found out that I'm a minister. This was not a convenient discovery. And the circumstances uh, were fairly turbulent, but it turned out that despite all my best efforts to ignore it, I am called to be with my people. That's what ministry is all about, accompanying our people on their journeys. That's what we do. This discovery was one of those cliffs I mentioned. Now, did I jump or was I pushed? Has that ever happened to you? You were minding your own business, or maybe you were sitting on a perfectly normal board of trustees, and the next thing you know, you're seeing things at both the micro and the macro levels all at once. This, this has a way of transforming a person, and by transforming, I mean that the form is changed. You can never go back to the old way of seeing or being in the world. Have you ever been shifted into a new way of seeing or being because of something that happened here at church? If so, good. That's why, we, that's why we come to this place, to be transformed, right? Okay. Seminary was actually very fun. It's just graduate school for church nerds. <laughs> Cambridge platform, Cambridge platform. But seminary can make a person mean. Reverend Meg mentioned that once in a sermon a few years ago, and she was looking directly at me when she said it. <laughs> Seminary can make a person mean. Maybe it's because it's this whole process that goes of unpacking your theological suitcase and repacking it over and over, and sometimes things don't fit very well, and, well, a person can get a little tetchy. Because in our religious movement, we're all about questioning and trying again and again to try and get things closer to a better way of being together. We act, we reflect, we adjust, we repeat over and over. That's what we do as Unitarians. You never get to be comfortable, right? You have to keep asking. Here's another reason why seminary can make a person mean. In it, the student gets to learn all of the awful ways that people have been hurt by religion all of the ways that people continue somehow to feel separated and unworthy of love because of a God that they might have rejected but that they still feel rejected by. And ministers come to see all the ways that people can suffer and we can barely do a thing about it except to sit with them and pray with them and walk with them, and help them sift through the ashes until they can find something that looks holy, or maybe at least like hope. Because at the same time we're being trained to preach and to lead, we're also learning that all of our work is completely ephemeral. That can make us humble, it should, but it can make us a little mean. 
Perhaps it was some of that meanness that prompted me to go back and look at that old story, the one about the woman who was told that she didn't know who she was. Only this time when I went back and I looked at it again, my lenses had shifted and the whole story looked very different. It no longer comforted me. And now I'm challenging it. Has this ever happened to you? Something that used to be wonderful, mm, a wonderful meal that used to taste so good. Now it's, you go back and you taste it. It's, it's too sweet. It's too oily. It's too salty. What, what happened? Was, has it always been this dreadful and I just didn't notice it? Maybe something went off and it's no longer good. Or, oh, it's me that changed. What used to nourish me is now indigestible. That's what happened when I went back to that story about the woman and the presence. I, I started unpacking it, and I was troubled by what I found at the bottom of the suitcase. See, when I first heard it, I, I used to hear the story as a powerful commandment, a commandment to strip away the superficial understanding of ourselves, especially for women who had been too often identified in terms of property, who they belonged to, first their, hus uh, their father, then their husband, right? And, and too often women were expected to set aside their own values, their own ambitions, and fit into culturally proscribed norms, I think that's what the story was supposed to be about. That's, that's what I heard the first time. But now I hear it very differently. Now I hear it as dismissing and denying the wholeness of a person's life. I, I don't like this story anymore. Here's why. When the woman asks, is asked, who are you? She answers with her name. But she's told that that's not good enough? Oh, really? Would you say that to a man of color who's been called boy when he's a grown man, that his name is not enough? Would you say that her name is not enough to a woman who's been called darling, sweetie, honey, by leering strange? You would say that her name is not enough? See, this gets me into some really prickly places about respect and disrespect for a person's inherent worth and dignity. When a person tells me their name, I respect it. That is who they want me to know them as. Okay, okay, okay. You might be saying, I'm just being all quibbly here, and then I'm placing contemporary analysis over what is so plainly an abstract story. I'm just being picky. Okay but I'm still not happy with that story. Because over and over, this woman identifies herself as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, as a granddaughter, as a member of a community. She identifies herself through her relationships to other people. And apparently that's not a good enough answer to who are you. See, here's what happens. When you start unpacking down at its core, this story is upholding a very Western, 
very narrow understanding of the self as something that exists apart from all others. That there is some essential part of the self that is more valuable when isolated, stripped of all of its external layers. This exalted self, and I'm using a capital S, self. This self is what is real, and all of the other layers of identity are somehow compromised or bent because of the influence of others. This capital S self is what is pure and real, and the relational self is somehow corrupted and illusory. I even got down to the part of unpacking. I just found that the questioner who asks, who are you, and rejects an answer, including relationships, is somehow inherently misogynistic. It prizes the individual over the community as though an individual can really exist separate from its community. The story snubs relational theology. That's a real thing. Even Christians practice it. Relational theology that places God, and that God can be a verb, noun, adverb, you choose. We're Unitarians. Places God, finds God in the spaces between two people. Sees the holy in the way that we are connected and maintain our connections. I like this theology. It's in my suitcase, right there next to process theology and panentheism and religious naturalism. I carry them all along with me. They come in handy. Now, in case you're following the arc of the sermon, because in seminary we're told that a a sermon should have an arc, an arc of what, so what, and now what. (laughs) We've gone through the what and maybe some of the so what. Now we're heading to the now what. Okay, now, I'd like you to just consider Try it on, what relational theology might look like. What, what is your own identity in terms of all of your relationships, current and past? What, what would it look like if you looked at the relationships, not just between people, but between the animals and the plants all around you? What is your relationship? Where, where is the holy in that midst? And then look at these relationships and identify the ones the people who have loved you forward, who looked at you exactly as you are and loved you for who you are and more astonishingly, for who you might become. Whose love pushed you ahead And whose love pulled you forward into your best self? I'm asking you to do this because when I was asked this question at seminary, who loved you here? I thought of you. And (laughs) y'all. Who loved me forward to the point where I could see that I was a minister called to be with my people? It was you. 
and y'all. It was this congregation as a whole and as individuals who pointed out this inconvenient truth about myself, and that's self with a lowercase s. And I want you to know this because it is proof that you are living out the mission of this church. You transformed my life. You showed me what is possible when people see that spark of the divine in one another. And you showed me that the only way to grow a community is to grow its individuals. You do church very well. And y'all do church very well with all the theologies you bring to it. And I want you to know that you will be with me as I prepare to leave. Because here's another awfulness and wonderfulness about being a minister. Ministers have to leave home. And this has been my home since about 1992. Ministers are expected to go someplace where they didn't help to create the system so that they can more easily see the work that needs to be done in the system. That's why you bring in an outside person. See, by loving me into ministry, you inadvertently pushed me out of my comfort zone. Thank you. (laughs) But mercifully, I have been pulled forward by a very sweet group of people. A month ago, I was called to be the settled minister at the Amarillo Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. They are so sweet. They are just like you. They are cranky and busy and loving and feisty and ha. I'm thrilled. I'm nervous, but I'm thrilled. Even more graciously, they did not only just love me, they loved my husband. Thank God. They're pulling us both forward. And it's so strange. They seem to see so much potential in me. I think that that's because they're seeing your love. When they look at me, they're seeing you, too. You pushed, they pulled. And now, if anyone asks, I am Nell. I am the wife of Monty. I am the mother of Henry and Elizabeth. I am the daughter of Jerry and Harry. I live next door to Helen and across the street from Judson. I am a student. I am a teacher. And I am a part of this congregation And you are a part of me. And that is who I am. And thus it shall ever be. Thank you so much. Will you please now join with me in extinguishing the chalice? The words are printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Walking with you, 
This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.